Hello, friends. It's time for the second hour of Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelman. Moody Radio is a Bible study across America where we're talking about your questions about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life. My name is Michael Rydelnik. I'm academic dean and professor of Jewish studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute, and we're live today sitting around the radio kitchen table taking your questions. Now's the time to give me a call. The phone number, 877-548-3675. That's 877-548-3675. If you can't call or can't get through, just go to our website, openlineradio.org. Click on Ask Michael a Question. You can leave your question there. I hope you have your Bibles open. I hope you have a second cup of coffee, because I always need a second one, because we're ready to talk about the Scriptures. And we're going to talk to Maria in Lakeland, Florida, listening on WKES. Welcome to Open Line, Maria. How can I help you today? Well, I have a question about David and Saul. When David had the evil spirit of the Lord come upon him and he had the headaches, he had, I'm sorry, when Saul had, um, he had David come and play his harp for him, and he knew him well. But yet, when David slew Goliath, Saul didn't recognize him. And he had known him well, and David was still a young man, so I just don't know how he didn't recognize him. Well, you know, you know how kings are. They're just so self-absorbed. They don't know anybody. You know, they can't remember. I'm, I don't, I'm just teasing. I'm pulling your leg. Uh, I believe what the answer is, and there, there are lots. Of, that's one of the issues that people find as to be critical of the Bible. The presumption that people have is that everything written in the historical books was written in chronological order. But I don't believe they were. There were things like that other passage where David is playing the harp. That's after David had already uh, sl- slain Goliath. But oh. the author of First uh, Samuel, in my opinion, put that in to introduce us to David and his gifting. But then uh, what happens is in chapter 15, you've got the rejection of Saul. Uh, chapter 16... Uh, you have the anointing of David. And then chapter 17, you've got, you know, Saul is rejected in chapter 15 because he doesn't have God's heart, right? He doesn't care. Right. And then chapter 16, David, he's the last one. He's out in the field. All the brothers are bigger and taller and handsomer. But no, uh, he's the one because he's the one after God's own heart. And and so right. people want to say, well, when you're reading it, you say, well, what makes David so special? Then you get chapter 17. He cared more about honoring God than he cared about his own safety or security. That's, Mm -hmm. and so that shows us that in the context there, it shows this is the person who has God's heart. That's the one. That's why he was chosen. Not because he was the oldest, the biggest, you know, it's because of his heart. Because man looks at the outward appearance. Uh, Chapter 16 says, God looks at the heart. Uh, it's okay. And so that's the sequence there, but I don't believe that it's always put in chronological order. It's the way the Bible is written in historical books. It, it follows a basic chronology, but it's more thematic than it is, uh, chronological. Okay. 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 Well, that answers that. Yeah. Good. I'm glad. By the way, don't you think that's, you know, so often when we study David and Goliath, 
you know how people teach it they'll say oh the, how do we overcome the 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 giants in our life right and it seems to me a better lesson from that is who asks the question who does god choose to use and the answer is god chose david because he had god's heart he had a heart for god put god first he you know he said who is it that he taunts the armies of the living god he was concerned that that goliath and the philistines didn't honor god and david was willing to put his own life on the line to put god first and honor him with everything i think when people say well how do i know god will use me let's be like david put god first put him put his honor uh, as our utmost concern honoring god above all don't you think that's a Yes, That's a better I way. agree, one hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I love that passage. One of my favorite passages. I love going to Israel, and standing in the Valley of Elah and teaching First Samuel seventeen. I, I just love it. So, anyway, thanks so much for your call, uh, Maria. With uh, call again at any time. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, we're going to speak next with Norm in Zeeland, Michigan, WGNB. Welcome to Open Line, Norm. Thank you. Um, I just had a quick question about when I pray with other people, quite often I hear them say, we bind Satan. And I'm like, where do they get that in Scripture, that we can bind Satan? Uh, well, there's uh, in Matthew, let's see. Oh, wait a second. Matthew 12, I think. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to, you guys, I'm trying to pull up the passage. I think it's a parable that people base it on. And uh, by the way, I never do that. I don't bind Satan. I trust God to yeah, do Satan. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. Me too. Uh, this is in Matthew 12. If you If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. Anyone who is not with me is against me. So uh, what what that's about is uh, people take that to mean that we have to bind Satan first, uh, bind the strong man before we can have God answer our prayers. And I, I okay. just don't think that that's what that's saying. He's using an illustration about the rejection uh, that he had there. Uh, so I don't think he's calling on us to bind Satan. Uh, that's that's just uh, it's, it's sort of an illustration. Uh, here's here's what someone once said. Uh, by driving out demons, he was proving he was greater than Satan. He was able to go into Satan's realm, the strong man's house, and uh, come away with victory. Uh, and that way, institute the kingdom of God. So, uh, basically what he is saying is, I'm not casting out demons by Satan's power. I'm casting out demons on my own power, and I have bound Satan the strong man, so I could do whatever I wish. That's what he's talking about. The one who binds the enemy, not us, not through our prayers, but the Lord Jesus. 
He's the one that does that. Okay, thank you. Okay, great. Uh, by the way, I don't think it's wrong because the Lord Jesus is the one that binds, but nevertheless, I don't think that's something that's essential. So uh, thanks for your question, Norm. We're going to talk with Kristen in Dayton, Ohio, listening on WFCJ. Welcome to Open Line, Kristen. How can I help you? Thank you. Hi. Um, I was wondering, I had a question about the Millennial Kingdom. I just um, wanted to understand how are we going to coexist with, so we're in our glorified bodies from what I understand, and Jesus is there and he's holy. How are we going to coexist with the people who are still in their sinful nature state um, when Satan comes to deceive them? How, well, uh, let me just put it this way. The Lord Jesus came to earth after the resurrection, right? And he was in his glorified body, and yet he was able to interact with people who were not yet glorified, right? right. So I don't, yeah. think, I don't think that'll be all. The, it, it's not that an impossibility. Uh, there will be people entering the kingdom who are not yet glorified. Think about this. At the return of the Lord Jesus, he comes and delivers Israel when they have believed in him. So they are believers, and he delivers Israel, and they enter the kingdom, but they have not yet been resurrected or translated or made glory, glorified, right? So they're going to be believers who enter the kingdom from the people of Israel, right? At the second coming, they, they enter the kingdom. They are not yet glorified. Also, after the judgment of the sheep and the goats, the judgment of the Gentile nations, that's what that is, at the second coming, when the Lord Jesus returns, he's going to judge the nations, and the sheep will enter the kingdom. The, those who are believers will, will enter the kingdom, and they will not yet have been glorified. So for the thousand-year reign, there's will be there, obviously those of us who have been uh you know, either translated or resurrected, will be there. But also there will be believers who have not yet been glorified. They will marry. They will have children. And when they marry and have children, their children will have to trust the Lord too. They will have to become believers in the Messianic kingdom. And some of them will and some of them won't. And they are the ones that will have the rebellion at the end of days, at the end of the uh, millennium that's spoken of in Revelation 20 when Satan is released and he deceives the nations once more and there's one last rebellion and then the new heavens and the new earth. So I hope, does that explain it for you? Is that what you're yeah, asking? Yeah, it's probably, yes, thank you. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's hard, hard for us to grasp that. <laughs> yeah. It's hard for us to, I'll tell you what's hard for me to believe, that there will be people born in the millennium who will live under the rulership, the just, wonderful rulership of the Lord Jesus and still not put their trust in him. Isn't that amazing? It's the crazy, heart of, yeah. Yeah, the heart of man is amazing. Uh, and it, really it, it, uh, Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking when I think about that. So anyway, uh, thanks for your question, Kristen. Uh, we're going to take a break here, come back with more of your questions. You can always call 877-548-3675. We're going to come back with uh, questions about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life. Stay with us. This is Michael Radelnik on Open Life.
Welcome back to Open Line. I'm Michael Rydelnik. I'm so glad that you're listening today. I'm so grateful for uh, our kitchen table partners. I want to say, you know, I'm grateful for every listener. I'm grateful for everyone that says they listen regularly. But I especially appreciate even more our kitchen table partners. They're the folks that say, I care about this program so much. I want to keep it on the air. I'm going to commit to a monthly gift. Uh, we're really looking, uh, by the way, to uh, my friend William Washington from Moody Bible Institute. He's our, our dean of student life. He's the one. He said, you got to double that number. I said, well, I can't. It's our listeners that can do that. And he said, well, remind them that we need to do that so that we can really firm up open line and make sure that we keep ministering to people and having their Bible questions answered and their, their spiritual life questions answered. If you would like to become a partner with us, that's the way to do it. Become a kitchen table partner. You can commit. And when you do, uh, you're helping expand and, and help this broadcast. I really, really do appreciate it. The way to do it is go to our website, openlineradio.org. There's a link there about how to become a kitchen table partner. And also, you can call 888-644-7122. By the way, when you become a Kitchen Table Partner, I will send you, every other week, a Bible study moment. It's a little mini Bible study, an audio Bible study. Click on it in your email, and uh, we'll spend five or seven minutes in the Word every other week together. I'd really appreciate it if you would do it. I thank you so much, all of you who have become Kitchen Table Partners, and especially those of you who are considering to do it as well. Uh, I did want to say, too, you know, we're, we're coming to the rapid season when uh, we need students who are, want to come to Moody for the fall. Now's the time to really start applying. We've got opportunities for people to come and, ex and look at the school all semester. We've got uh, great opportunities uh, to come to Moody. And here's the and the most amazing thing about coming to being a resident student in Chicago, living in the dorms, which is a great way to study, but that's all you'll pay for is room and board. Uh, everyone else gets a full tuition scholarship. Uh, students pay room board and uh, special fees for classes, but that's it. Otherwise, it's uh, room and board and fees and no, otherwise no tuition. It's it's how I was able to afford to go to college at Moody. It's how Trish McMillan, our producer, she was able to afford it. We're really grateful for what the Friends of the Institute have done. And so if you're interested in a great biblical foundation for life and uh, also a, a very, very helpful financial uh, uh, package to get everyone into school here that can, that can do the work, we're really grateful for them. So what you do is check out moody.edu. I hope you'll come visit Moody. I hope you'll apply. Uh, if, you, if, you're, uh, if you have a, a son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter uh, that you think would benefit from that, please tell them about uh, moody.edu. Check out Moody Bible Institute. We're going to talk to Jim in Oak Brook, Illinois, listening on WMBI, our flagship station. Welcome to Open Line, Jim. How can I help you? Good morning, Michael Rodelnik. I'm so happy to be on your show here to have you to ask this perplexing question. It's well, perplexing is a little strong. How about just a curious question? Uh, in Exodus 25:15 and Exodus 37:5, God gave very specific instructions to Moses that the carrying poles for the Ark of the Covenant should always remain in place. 
when God says always, uh, we are to understand that he means what he says, and we're reminded repeatedly in Scripture the importance of, being, of, of obeying God's instructions precisely. I don't ever recall reading that God said, you may remove the poles when the ark is finally in place inside the Holy of Holies. I took this uh, divine instruction to be similar to his instructions um, uh, when he said that uh, bread is to be baked without yeast so that, um, like the ark, it be ready to go when it's time to quickly leave. And that he also added the added benefit of the poles of preventing anyone from ever touching the ark directly. Yet, um, I read in just this morning, as a matter of fact, to remind me of this question that I've had before, that in Numbers chapter 4 and verse 6, the Kohathites, which we read were in Scripture, were the vision of the tribe of Levi in charge of the logistical packing up and moving of the tabernacle when the camp moves, are instructed to put the carrying poles of the ark in place in preparation to move the ark. Now, per God's original standing instruction in Exodus, shouldn't those poles have already been inserted through the golden rings and have been in place to begin with? Well, I think uh, when you read Exodus 25, where it says uh, the poles are to remain in the rings of the ark, they must not be removed from it. I think that's talking mm -hmm. about when they move it. In the context, it's talking about moving the ark. Uh, oh, okay. And so always when you move it, keep the poles in the ark. It doesn't mean when it comes standing that the poles can't be taken out. So the Ark of the Covenant is always to have uh, the poles when it's moved. And then when you're going to move it, it's the Kohathites who put them in because it's always supposed to have poles when you move the Ark. That's what it's referring to. Okay? Okay. And then that kind of, that kind of brings to mind uh, just a, a follow-up to that. Uh, in uh, chapter uh, in Second Samuel in chapter 6, when we when we hear about uh, the unfortunate passing of Uzzah, who was the um, who was apparently on the team to uh, move the ark on its procession back to uh, Jerusalem, that he uh, there was a, a, a misstep by the oxen and the uh, cart became unsteady or something, and he quickly reached to uh, touch the uh, um, the ark and uh, that God struck Uzzah dead on the spot for touching it directly. That uh, I'm thinking, had the poles yeah. been in place, he could have grabbed those poles. <laughs> well, here's the thing: they were looking for ease. They put it on a cart instead of carrying it on a pole on poles. And uh, I think Uzzah had the the right. He didn't want the ark to fall, but they were treating it uh, like a talisman or or something that was uh, a good luck charm. That's how they were treating it, and they needed to treat it as holy and follow God's rules about that. And I think this was a very clear way that God was saying, uh, do not take lightly the directions I've given you about how to move the ark. So don't look for your ease. Look for your obedience. Okay? Hey, thanks for your yeah. call. Really appreciate it. We're going to talk with uh, Akpin in Greenville, South Carolina, listening at W. FCM or on the app. Welcome to Open Line. How can I help you? Yes, Dr. Organic. Thank you so much for taking my call. I love your show and uh, thank you to you and your team for all you do. Thank you. Um, I, 
I have a I have a question uh, about Luke seventeen eleven through nineteen, when Lord Jesus healed the ten lepers. Um, he the text said that he looked at them and told them to go show themselves to the the priest. So they went on their way, and while on their way, they were healed. So that act of going was that faith or was that obedience or was it both? Um, I'm just a little. I just yeah. want to try to understand that part a little bit better. The the Lord Jesus said, "Go uh, and show yourself," and they they could see it themselves that they were not yet healed. So they went, believing that he would heal them. But they they started to obey him, even though he had not healed them. And only once they started, it's sort of like when Moses steps into the water. Uh, that's when the yeah. Red Sea parts. Uh, so that's what happened. I believe it. That would be that's what we would call in Scripture the obedience of faith. Okay. okay. It's just like it's like uh, Abraham said to the men who were with him when he took Ishmael. Ishmael. I'm sorry. Well, I've got that wrong. Uh, Isaac to mm-hmm. be bound. He said, mm-hmm. uh, 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 "The boy and I will return to you." Well. That meant that he was going to obey God about sacrificing mm-hmm. his son, but he believed God would raise him from the dead. So, uh, so he was doing the obedience of faith, and and that's what was happening here with the ten lepers. The amazing thing is, only one came back to say thank you. I know, and he was, and he was a Samaritan. Uh, that's the mm-hmm. an outcast, one that was. Hateful and hated. You know, the Samaritans hated mm-hmm. the Jewish people. Uh, there had been a long history of tension between Samaritans and Jewish people. And so that, that'd be like uh, the outcast person, the dangerous person coming back and, and saying thank you. So we're, mm. that's, that's a pretty amazing story. It's true. It was. Yes, yeah. really amazing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks for oh, clarifying that for me. Thank you so much. Yeah. God bless you. Thanks for calling. Okay. We're going to talk with Carol in Cleveland, listening on WCRF. Welcome to Open Line, Carol. How can I help you? Thank you so much. Um, I have a question regarding Isaiah 45, 3, where it says, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by name, am the God of Israel. Um, what is meant by the secrets of darkness? I mean, the secrets of the quiet places and the riches of darkness. Oh, my. Uh, I don't believe it's anything evil, if that's what you're asking. Uh, no, I'm is... just, I'm, <laughs> I've been thinking about this, and I couldn't find it in... A commentary. Um, it refers to other verses that mention darkness and secrets, but it doesn't really specifically say what this refers to. Mm-hmm. Now, does that well, mean, you know, if you're walking in sin and the Lord reveals something to you, is that the treasures of darkness that the light shines brightest in the darkest places? Or I'm, I'm just questioning. <laughs> You know, well, here's, uh, I will give you hidden treasures, riches stashed away in secret places. So that's just talking about, uh, 
that God's going to give the faithful remnant uh, secret treasures, treasures that no one else knows about. That's all. It's, it's sort of a metaphor for God's going to give you things that that no one uh, knows about. I'll give you wonderful treasures that are hidden in dark places, riches that no one knows about. Uh, and it's talking about that God's really going to bless them with things that they're not even aware of. That's what I think that's talking about. Applied so to Gentiles? Like Pardon me? Can this be applied to Gentiles as well, or is this strictly applied to Jewish believers? Well, I think that's, well, this then it was talking about the remnant of Israel. That's the direct meaning. But I do believe that God gives special blessing to anyone that has uh, turned to him. And uh, th there's treasures that no one knows about that we get the benefit of that are hidden and secret. It's spiritual blessings that uh, it says in Ephesians 1 that believers get every spiritual blessing, right? Uh, the, uh, right. In the heavenlies. And so those are things that I think this, that's the kind of thing it's talking about there. Okay? All right. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. So, yeah, by the way, isn't that amazing? We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, secret places, things that people don't know about. Uh, sometimes I think we're not even aware of it. Maybe we better read Ephesians a lot more and, and see all the great gifts that God gives us that are hidden from others. Hey, thanks for your call, Carol. We're going to come back with the mailbag in just a bit, the FEBC mailbag. Trisha McMillan is chomping at the bit to get in here, so we'll let her in. This is Open Line with Michael Ray Don't Like. back. It's time for the FEBC mailbag. I'm so grateful for, for Far Eastern Broadcasting Company, which partners with Open Line. They bring us the, they, they support and partner with us uh, so that we can bring you the FEBC mailbag. And you can write to us. You just go to our website, openlineradio.org. Click on the link that says, ask Michael a question. And Trish puts them together and we'll take those questions and answer them on the air every week grateful for FEBC and all they're doing to reach people in unreached places with the Far East Broadcasting Company. Check out FEBC.org. They've got a, a terrific uh, podcast called Until All I've Heard that features Ed Cannon and Wayne Shepard. You'll love it. So check it out. Go to FEBC.org. And uh, Trish is here with yeah. the mailbag. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm all set. Okay. Ready to go? Yes. Okay. Okay, our first question is from Mary in Georgia, listens to WLPE, and says if you if she wants to begin taking biblical courses with a, a goal eventually towards a degree, which is unknown right now, <laughs> what mm -hmm. basic courses would be would you suggest to start? And she's been listening for fifteen years. Oh, great the program, yeah. Well, well, she, well, not to this program for fifteen years, but something like this yeah. for fifteen. Yeah, because we've been on I think, almost thirteen, uh, right? No. Uh, 12. I think 12. it's 12 years, isn't it? Yeah. It'll be 12 in April. Yeah, 12 in April. Okay. Uh, and you've been with Open Line not quite that long. No. Like t 10 years about? Something like that. No, yeah, eight. It's amazing. Eight. Eight years. Eight years. Yeah. And, and you look exactly the same. <laughs> I got to tell you. You haven't aged You were at kind all. to say so. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. So, anyway, uh, here's what I would say. First of all, Start studying the Bible now. Don't have to go to school. 
Uh, I think that's a, a great thing to do. Also, we've got terrific Moody Online courses that a person could take. Uh, and I'll mention a couple good ones that to start with. Uh, depending on a person doing a graduate or undergraduate degree, they're both available for both uh, graduate or undergraduate, and they can apply to a later degree that you decide to take. Uh, but I want to encourage this, that get our Bible study resource for this month. That's a great place to start. Before you even take a course, you can. Uh, our current resource was based on a course I took in seminary, uh, Prof. Howard Hendricks taught every Dallas Seminary student Bible study methods. He was a master teacher. He opened our minds. He showed us how, not only how great and fun it was to study the Bible, but also he made it a lot of fun, but it also gave us a really good instruction on how to get more out of the scriptures. And so I would say, uh, start with getting a copy of Living by the Book by Howard Hendricks. That's a wonderful book. He committed that course, Bible Study Methods, to writing. It's called Living by the Book. And by the way, we'd love to send uh, people copies of a copy of Living by the Book. The way to do that is give a gift of any amount, and we'll send you Living by the Book just to say thank you. Uh, give a gift of any size, and that's what we'll send you. If you'd like to do that, go to openlineradio.org or call 888-644-7122. Now, I'm going to see if you agree with me about what courses you should start with. Okay. Because okay? you you went to Moody Bible Institute and Moody Graduate School, right? I did, so, yes. I think everyone should take Old Testament survey, New Testament survey to get an overview of the Bible. Mm-hmm. That's where I would start. Secondly, I would take a course in interpreting the Bible, hermeneutics, uh, so that you can get some skill to know a metaphor from a uh, uh, from a literal direct statement, okay, and learn how to interpret things. So that, and then I would say take a, a basic doctrine course. Uh, in the undergraduate school, we offer a course called The Church and Its Doctrines, which covers the doctrines of the Bible. So th those are five courses, or four courses I would start with. Number one, Old Testament survey. Number two, New Testament survey. Number three, hermeneutics. And number four, doctrine. Okay. What do you think, Tricia? Yeah, those are, those are good. Um, would you suggest any theology classes? Uh, well, once uh, you take the doctrine course. Okay. You know, yeah. Uh, at the way we teach it in the undergraduate school at Moody is every freshman takes the church and its doctrines. Okay. And then juniors and seniors take theology one and two. Okay. Uh, Which is after very different from how it was way back in my day. Yeah, we me had too. four theology classes, and you took one each year. So there was a theology one hundred, a two hundred, a three hundred, and a four hundred. Yeah. Um, that all kind of stood alone, other than having to just get the, ba they kind of just gave you the basics of each of the main doctrines. Well, we still do the same thing. You know, at the time, Theology 100 was spiritual life mm -hmm. back when you went. We still have a course in spiritual life, and you can't take Theology 1 and 2 until you take spiritual life. Okay, okay. So, uh, so yes. but So different names in different orders, but yeah. still the same core classes. Yes, I think exactly. I think those are all good. The other one I remember... Being good. By the way, that's yeah. a great course to take too. Spiritual life and community, it's called, and it's uh, a great 
uh, undergraduate course in spiritual life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, was, and I'm trying to, was it Bible intro? Um, oh, yeah. Was the name of it I where it kind of gave you the history of this is where the Bible came from and why we can trust it. Yes, that, Bible that was, introduction. Bible introduction. One of my favorite courses, when I first got to Moody, I, that was a Bible department course I wanted to teach, and they've never allowed, 30 years, I've never been allowed to teach it. Now, if they ask me, I'm going to say it's too late. I'm not prepping <laughs> uh, that course, but uh, I always wanted to. That's a great, great course. And, you know, here's the thing. You notice what we're saying? This is, these are such great courses. How about this in the curriculum? How about this in the curriculum? Right. Which that was five. That would what, be like one full-time semester, right? <laughs> yeah. So what you want to do is really come to Moody Bible Institute. That's the best way to get a great foundation. Check out moody.edu. Send your kids. Send your grandkids. Or you come yourself. It's a great way to study. Or you can study online through Moody Online. Check that out. Yeah. Okay. And some of these, I remember, um, especially like the Old Testament, New Testament survey, there, are, there were, um, before we had the online option, they were the correspondence courses. Like yeah. a lot of these where you could um, do those, you know, writing down and then you would mail them in and, and those kinds of things. So it's all I'm valuable really glad we've, we've, courses. We've come into the modern era. We, <laughs> we, it online we have. Now. We have. Yeah. But there's a lot of good classes and they've been around for a long time and have been um, the, the basic building blocks of getting the degree, whatever you want it to be. Yeah. I think even these classes... Those five, the Old Testament survey, New Testament survey, the hermeneutics, which is the Bible interpretation, the church and its doctrines, and Bible introduction, even if you're not getting a degree, those are all helpful for your own spiritual life to understand. You know, if you're a Bible, a a Sunday school teacher, a small group leader, or even just teaching your own kids or grandkids, um, they're all, or, or just for your own personal life, those are all helpful classes to help you understand the Bible better and how... Uh, how we've gotten to where we are in Christianity. Yeah, and, and also get Living by the Book. Yep. Yes. <laughs> Howard Hendricks. And, and I'll tell you another thing. Get a Moody Bible commentary. That would be a great thing to help you uh, with your foundation for life. So there we go. Uh, let's go to the next question. All right. All right. And the next question is from... Um, from Mai in Florida. Listens Mai, to WKES. And she said, recently a friend mentioned that they don't believe in the Trinity, but believe all three are separate and gave her five different scriptures um, talking about God alone is God and um, the the son and the father being separate, um, that there's only one true God, um, these types, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. So how do you, um, how do you, how does someone respond to someone who does not see the Trinity, um, but but says there's only there's, they're all three separate things because that's how the Bible well, talks the, about them. First of all, there's only one God. Where you know, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy six four. There's only one God, and that's taught both Old and New Testament. Uh, the Bible teaches that the Father is God our God and Father, right? It talks mm-hmm. about uh, the Son being God uh, in a uh, number of passages. Well, can't say how many passages talk about the Son of God being God himself. I was just reading 
Romans 9, 5, uh, where it talks about the Lord Jesus being physically Jewish, right? Uh, and it says about the Jewish people, to him belong, uh, the ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Messiah, who is God over all. So, so there's the Lord Jesus in Romans 9, 5, called, referring to his physical descent from the Jewish people, so human, and at the same time, who is God overall. So the Son of God is God. And then you've got the Holy Spirit is God. He's got the attributes of deity, uh, and uh, the, he's called God. Uh, well, here's the point. The Bible teaches that there's one God, and then there's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they're God. Well, how could that be? Well, it's what I would call the Trinity. It's what the Bible teaches. It never explains how that can be. Uh, someone wrote in the 50 questions, one of the questions I answered, can you give a simple explanation of the Trinity? My answer was, I wish I could. But a, a lot of the early church fathers spent a lot of time trying to figure out how could the three be one and one, one God and three persons. And of course, they came up with this one essence, which is God. And the, the three persons of the Trinity share that one essence of deity. And, and that's how it is. If, if I think I could explain that or understand it, now people always come up with illustrations. You know, egg has got eggshell, it's got egg white, it's got egg yolk. They're all equally egg. Uh, you know, if that illustration helps you, fine, but the, every illustration breaks down. It's just what we uh, affirm because the Bible teaches it. Theologians have tried to explain it. But I think the key is that we have to believe it. So, uh, okay. okay. Well, anyway, thanks. Thanks for the question. Yeah, and, you're welcome. Uh, thanks, Mike. Yeah, we're going to come back with more questions in just a moment uh, when uh, Tricia is uh, going back and checking out other questions you've sent in to openlineradio.org by going to ask Michael a question. Thank you so much for doing that, Tricia. And uh, we're going to come right back with your more phone-in questions. That was Tricia McMillan. I'm Michael Rydelnik. This is Open Line. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Open Line. I'm Michael Rydelnik. And I want to mention this. It's important. Because Israel is at war. It's a war that the nation didn't start, didn't want, didn't anticipate. And it came as a result of the horrific October 7th assault by Hamas when they murdered more Jewish people in any one day since the Holocaust. What does the future hold now? Chosen People Ministries, which is one of our ministry partners, they want to offer, or they are offering, a special book. It's called Israel's glorious future. The book details God's faithfulness to his covenant promises to Israel in the past that he, he made them and he's keeping them and the biblical prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled in the future. The Bible, God's word plainly says that Israel has a glorious future. If you'd like a copy of their book, Israel's Glorious Future, just go to openlineradio.org. Scroll down, you'll see a link that says a free gift from Chosen People Ministries Click on that, you'll be taken to a page where you can sign up for your own copy 
of Israel's glorious future. We're going to speak now with Susan in Northbrook, Illinois, listening on WMBI. Welcome to Open Line, Susan. How can I help you today? Thank you for taking my call. I'm wondering about the history of Lent in church history. When did they start um, practicing a Lenten season? And, you know, what did they do? And when did it end for some denominations? It seems to have started in the third century. People started practicing some sort of self-denial as they approached the weeks coming up to Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Uh, But the calendar really where it was made official was at the Council of Nicaea, Mm -hmm. uh, where there were, and that was in 325. And uh, that's, I think, where it came from. Uh, You know, it was never a great season for Jewish people. Okay. Uh, The reason is when Jewish people lived among Christians, it was when Lent began that the Christians began to uh, emphasize assaulting, beating, killing Jewish people. Wow. Uh, So uh, sadly, along with self-denial, there was also a lot of destruction, uh, a lot of blaming Jewish people for falsely, not the Bible doesn't do this, but falsely blaming Jewish people for the death of Jesus. And as they prepared to observe Good Friday, uh, it led to a lot of assaults on Jewish people. It was the worst season of the year, Lenten season, for Jewish people, culminating in Resurrection Sunday being the worst for the Jewish community. So it's kind of heartbreaking for me as I look back on it. Uh, it, The the church moved away from Lenten when it became less formalistic, less liturgical, and after the now, the, of course, there was uh, Lutheranism with the Reformation, uh, became uh, was, maintained a lot of liturgy and things like Lent. Uh, but as the church became more informal with the Anabaptist traditions and things like that coming in, then there was a, a sort of a rejection as the Reformation church did that. Uh, there was a rejection of formalism, of liturgy. And so, as a result, uh, Lenten went by the wayside. That's that's what I would say. Thank you, thank you. Okay, yeah. Okay. Uh, appreciate appreciate the call. Uh, we're going to speak with Tim in the Twin Cities in Minnesota, listening on the Moody app. How can I help you today, Tim? Hey, I'm a KTP Kitchen Table Partner, and great. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. Question I have, and I get opinions left and right, but never a true answer. Sabbath, Saturday, or Sunday? Um, do you have some insight to that and what it's based on? Some people celebrating well, it, of course, on Sundays and Saturdays. Yeah. Just so you know, I'm going to give you about a one minute answer. And I, re- I once wrote a whole uh, paper uh, for a theology conference about it. So there's. <laughs> I could read you the paper. That would take an hour. So, But here's the simple answer. That Sabbath is always Saturday. Never changes. Uh, with, the, uh, with the New Testament, what happened was, uh, not that Sabbath is no longer Saturday, but Paul writes in Romans 14, one, manners, one man honors one day above another, another views them all alike. Let all be convinced in his own mind. Which means that the 
day of worship for believers doesn't have to be on Sabbath, doesn't have to be on Sunday. It has to be when God leads you and leads your congregation. So there's a great deal of freedom, according to the Bible, about when to worship. The early Jewish believers, they went to, you can see it in the book of Acts, they went to the the temple on Saturdays, on Sabbath. They went, they gathered as believers. You could see that in Acts 20. They gathered as believers on Saturday night. Uh, So that's when they did that. Uh, The early church said Sunday would be an appropriate day because of the resurrection. So a lot of the Gentile churches began to do that. That seemed fine as well uh, to gather on the first day of the week. Uh, And the reason is, Paul says, is because there was a great deal of freedom. Okay? Okay. So get rid of the guilt and stuff people have sometime, and you're awesome, Mike. Well, (laughs) thank you. You know, what day does your church meet? Uh, Sunday, of course. Yeah. Um, but my yeah. daughter goes on Saturday, so of course that's where the debate started. And then you talk to people, and they don't have good answers, but they, um, you know, boy, that clears it up. And I wrote a lot down here. So, well, we we were uh, in a church. Well, we, we're we're going to church a lot in Michigan now because we go on the weekends to Michigan, and uh, the church we go to meets Saturday night and Sunday morning, and we go at Saturday night. And that's because Romans 14 says there's a good deal of freedom. I think what's really commanded, and this is so important, that believers believers gather for worship. It says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And so, I mean, if I had no choice, I'd go on Sundays, but I prefer Saturday night. So, uh, and there are a lot of reasons. One being that often I preach on Sundays. And if I preach, it's hard for me to go to a regular congregation. So Saturday night's preferable. So anyway, uh, thanks for your call. Can you believe it? The program's over. But we'll be back next week with more of your questions about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life. My name is Michael Rydonlick. Join me next week uh, during the break. Uh, during the break. Uh, check out our webpage afterwards. OpenLineRadio.org has all sorts of links, current resource, how, how to become a kitchen table partner. We'll be back again next week. Keep reading the Bible. We'll talk about it next week. Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik is a production of Moody Radio, the ministry of Moody Bible Institute. See you next week.